0: man brother g2 national director of journey for justice alliance i'm your host for the on the ground podcast you can reach us on twitter at j4j underscore usa you can also reach us on our facebook page at the journey for justice alliance you can also reach us at our new special website www.chaserprivatizerdownthestreet.com i'm only kind of kid all right peace good evening world what's happening Barigani, Hotep, Peace, and What Up Dope. Once again, this is a podcast that lifts up the artistic science and community organizing so that brothers and sisters in the public can actually understand from the people who are making change how to make change. Too often, uh, we are taught that there's no way we can win and it comes at us from so many different directions. So we want to provide a little inspiration and a little hope so that you can hear from folks who ain't just talking it, but they walking it. And today, I am blessed to have on our show. I call him the humble genius, right? (laughs) This is uh, Dr. Yuhuru Williams, who is the professor of history, the dean of the College of the Arts at St. Thomas University. This brother has served as the chief historian of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. He is a board member along with myself with the Network for Public Education. This brother has been called one of the top young historians in the up-and-coming under 40. That was a few years ago. Few but, uh,
1: years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a beautiful brother, man, and I'm, I'm so honored to have you on the show. Dr. Uhuru uh-huh. Williams, uh-huh. say what up to the On The Ground family. What's up, family? Thanks for
1: having me on, G2. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. G2, can yeah. I, no, I'm going to start by asking you a question, though, because... Uh-oh. One of the things I love about the podcast, one of the things mm-hmm. I love about what you're doing is you talk about the artistic science of organizing. Yes, Can yes, you just sir. break that down for folks? Because sometimes I find that there is a, a blockage in our community in understanding that it is both yeah. the art and science to reaching people in that way.
0: The reason we call it an artistic science is to understand that when people have organized to make change, it was not yeah. just about grabbing a megaphone and running out on the street and screaming that there are rules, there are formulas to doing this work. Like there are ways to base build, right? There are rules to building coalitions. Coalitions are different than alliances. Coalitions are more around temporary arrangements around addressing a particular issue. Amen. Effective coalition work can and should lead to alliances, which is more around people being aligned around shared values. The next step after doing that alliance work is movement work. Right. And often we start off with campaigns, campaigns, often short term efforts to build power to address a particular issue. Again, the science part of it is the fact that there are rules to this. Right. But the artistic part to it is that you also must be creative. You have to often make something out of nothing. So an example could be that you're organizing and you're trying to pressure powerful interest and you might be or helping a school organize and there's only 5 parents at the school that want to stand up but you want to make it seem like you know that there's a crowd so you actually get members from the neighborhood to stand with those parents right mm. artistic is what type of tactics can you use if you don't have a huge base of people I give you a good example when we were fighting to save Diet High School we had a, a large base of people that supported us right we could fill up a room in a town hall. But we had a small group of what I would call hardcore hitters, right? People that were willing to get arrested, people mm. who didn't live in public housing. Mm. So they were willing to take those risks. So the question became how do we speak power to power? And how do we capture the media narrative? So one of the tactics that we used was 15 of us chained ourselves outside the statue right outside Rahm Emanuel's office. And for the entire day, we were on the news. And what did that do? That allowed our narrative to get out there, right? We've Mm -hmm. done things like the school board won't let us in or the school board is trying to put like charter school advocates in front of us. So we did a tent city in front of the school board, Mm -hmm. right? And slept there overnight, you know? And then what happened? The four o'clock news came, the five o'clock news came, the six o'clock news came. That's artistic. That is taking your base and figuring out a way as the the principal Coomber talks about doing all we can in the way that we can in order to leave our community more beneficial than when we inherited it. So you have to often find a way when most folks would think there is no way. And you have to often be creative because you're dealing with very powerful, well-financed interests. So how can people that don't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of beat that? right? Right. And then another part of it is, You have to be creative. So sometimes what we you have to do is work with your people almost like you're working in a laboratory. Mm. That sounds crazy. But what I mean by that is if everything we see teaches us we can't win as organizers, what our folks that we're working with, we have to strategically organize little victories. Mm. And then as we organize those little victories, analyze the process, right? Analyze the application of the formula. So that people understand what worked and what didn't work so that we can then do, you know, if you believe, OK, we actually got him to say he wouldn't close the school. That's a little victory. So then how do we go a step further? We begin that process by saying that we create our own spaces where we see each other from our own image and not the image of our press, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's just speaking to your question a little bit. No, it that, does. One of the
1: things mm-hmm. I loved about watching Journey in particular is when just mm-hmm. using that music motif, it's mm-hmm. like hip hop and jazz, like the freestyle, you know, jazz has rules, but you never hear that piece the same way twice. The creativity so right. within the themes, mm-hmm. but it requires us to think about every moment is unique. Every performance is unique. Every scene unique. And Absolutely. it's one of the things I've appreciated to, about the way that Journey in particular is going about activism in this moment. And mm. it harkens back to what we saw in the 50s and 60s. We think about the sit-ins, right? Mm. And that's everyone's image is what happened in, in Little Rock. And they forget about the wait-ins at beaches and they forget about what was happening at lunch counters and all these other segregated spaces where that creativity right. you're talking about has always been part of the way that we've challenged depression.
0: I appreciate that, brother. And, and, and if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow that jazz metaphor that you used. So, so we're going to work with that. But um, I appreciate you starting us off that way because not only do we have to understand the artistic science and community organizing, we also have to understand our history as we've struggled. There's an African proverb that says, Until lions have their own historians, the story of the hunt will always favor the hunter, right? That's right. And so, it's really important we begin to say who our heroes are. There's a reason why people don't know who Ella Baker is. Or they don't know who Septima Clark is. Right. You know, There's a reason why folks don't know who Al Raby is or, or E.D. Nixon. And, and so it's important uh, for brothers like you that are blowing the trumpet of justice to create those spaces where we can understand how have we struggled and how have we resisted. So, brother, I got some questions for you. Before we get to the question, <laughs> we're going to do our member spotlight. All right, right. Sounds good. All right. So what we like to do this evening, and as you all know, on the ground family, every week we recognize one of our member organizations who's speaking power to power. So we want to lift up Patterson Education Organizing Committee and the Patterson Education Fund. Our sister, Linda Reed, and our sister, Rosie Grant, out of Patterson, New Jersey. Now, if you ever heard of Patterson, New Jersey, you might remember the movie uh, Hurricane, Reuben Hurricane Carter, come from the mean streets of Patterson. And it is a city where the hood is real. They ain't playing in Patterson, New Jersey. But, um, you know, if folks don't know, all the black cities in New Jersey lost their right to vote. They had a snatch from them through a state takeover, despite the fact that they had an initiative called the Abbott decision that was actually creating and moving towards equity in New Jersey. And, of course, the state of New Jersey invented an education crisis like they do everywhere else, and they snatched away democracy from simply those black cities. And Sister Rosie and Sister Linda have been part of a successful effort to bring back local control in those spaces. The Patterson Education Organizing Committee and Patterson Education Fund have uh, launched several successful campaigns, stopping school closings advancing sustainable community schools, and actually winning resources for what they call breakfast before the bell, making sure that our young people receive the health resources that they're supposed to receive every morning. They do incredible work, and, and what's heavy about their work is that Rosie is um Tucson Overture. So Rosie is diplomatic. She's the one that pulls the coalition tables together because she, she says, we just want to be a part of the process. But then Linda Reed and her crew, they desolines the ferocious. They come with the machetes and and, and flipping over tables. So I love their one-two punch. I love the work that they do. They're small, but they're mighty. They're brilliant. They understand education policy and how to implement it. They understand what should be happening in the classroom. And they have been a very influential member of the Journey for Justice Alliance. So I just want to say salute to my sisters from Patterson Education Organizing Committee and the Patterson Education Fund. So now we are here with Dr. Yuhuru Williams and we wanna jump right into it, brother. So my first question for you is why should organizers and people that care about justice understand the civil rights and black power movements? And what should we understand?
1: It's a great question, Brother G2. And I think it even is in the salutes that you were giving out to Patterson. We think about the Abbott decision uh, from 1985, mm-hmm. and how that has colored so much of New Jersey's education law and policy sense mm-hmm. and the segregation mm-hmm. that was intended to fight, but ultimately helped to perpetuate in the process. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our history sometimes is obscured by the fact that mm-hmm. people don't see that connectivity to the deep struggle for racial justice in this country, uh, for mm-hmm. equality for Black people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that grew out of the Civil War and the assumption that with the abolition of slavery, what you would have is full equality. We have been involved Mm -hmm. in a constant and evolving struggle since the close of the Civil War to ensure and maintain equality for people of color, for black people in particular in this country. That's right. The problem is rooted in the fact that our opponents, uh, those who have allied against us in critical issues of housing and education try to use the legacy of the civil rights movement to make this a question of opportunity as, a, as opposed to access. You have the opportunity to go to school. You have an opportunity to get a job. You have an opportunity to do this. And that's at the core of the democratic uh, enterprise. The mm. reality is that in this country, this has really been about access because mm. opportunity without access or opportunity in the absence of access is a denial of access. Now Such. I know Bernie knows that at the core, that's what you were saying in diet and trying to make the mm. case that if you close the school, you are not only closing off an avenue for opportunity, you're closing off access. So an opportunity for right. the school doesn't guarantee access. Mm. Dr. King probably put it best argued in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos of Community? What good is it to have the right to eat in a restaurant if you can't afford anything on the menu? So civil mm. rights without economic justice are dead rights. Opportunity mm. without access is no access at, at all. It's a denial of opportunity and access.
0: Teach. Yes, sir. I appreciate that. I'm going to offer my layman's analysis, brother. so so be merciful, right? (laughs) So my understanding of the civil rights movement is that it was about access to resources and opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the struggle. And the Black Power Movement, to me, we didn't control the narrative. But when I study it, it feels like an escalation. It feels like more of a beginning craft of nationhood to begin to say, we're gonna define name and speak for ourselves, instead of being defined name and spoken for by others. A lot of what, uh, as I mentioned to you before, as a young man, I began to study under many of the men and women from the black power movement. And what I learned in that process, it was always about creating institutions, Mm -hmm. that organizers have to be able to create institutions to meet the needs of your people, because you have to create alternatives which remove the obstacles from your people being willing to engage. That's how I understand it. What would you say to that?
1: That is the essence of black power. If you were to see yes, black power historically, if we were to go back to the turn of the century and look at organizations like the Moore Science Temple, the Nation of Islam, you know, that is the core of what they were talking about, is black institution building as mm-hmm. a means mm-hmm. of surviving America. So the right. nation building is a means of creating an economic and social and political system outside the mainstream that That's would guarantee right. the dignity and integrity of black life, that would mm. ensure economic opportunity, that would put African Americans or, or black peoples in mm. a position to control their own destiny. So Dude. by the time we get to Malcolm, and we're talking about Malcolm X articulating these these concepts, and Malcolm's coming from a long tradition. And even right. post-Malcolm, you've got the black arts movement in Newark, New Jersey, and Amiri Baraka. You've mm. got all the wonderful organizing that's going on in Detroit. I can't even begin to begin, you know talk about Detroit and Chicago and Pittsburgh mm. and mm. Black Power at the core in those spaces was about um, an affirmation of Black identity, uh, right. an opportunity for for Black people to through Black expressive culture to celebrate mm. the essence of what Blackness was, mm-hmm. uh, a identification with the nationhood and identity beyond the United States. Well, Black community control and Black power is what the Panthers were doing in Oakland. Let's that's right. Let's Elaine Brown for mayor and, and city council. Let's mm-hmm. take the mechanisms of government and do so in a way that we can use government in the service of the people.
0: Absolutely. And and also, I think that's why our ancestor Fred Hampton was mm-hmm. such a threat, because a lot of the work that he did with the Blackstone Rangers and the Devil Disciples, mm-hmm. uh, Devil Disciples are the precursor to gangster disciples and black disciples today. But a lot of the work that he was doing with them was actually for them to see themselves as a political force, right? They did voter registration drives, right? And things of that nature. So, you know, I hear you, brother. And and I think it's important for our listeners to understand that as black people, what was snatched from us was a sense of identity, Mm. purpose, and direction, Mm. right? If someone else defines who you are, then they actually chart your purpose. They actually help set your purpose because you don't see yourself through your own set of possibilities. You see yourself through a predetermined set of limitations that somebody else is giving you. And so I know what that work has done for me in regards to my own personal you know, development as an organizer, as a person you know, trying to get free, it's been being in spaces where we begin to affirm for ourselves who we were, learn our own history, identify our own heroes, and then what should be our philosophy of carrying out this work that is not controlled by those that want to oppress us. I'm bringing that up because one of the things that we see happening now is the creation of more multiracial spaces Mm -hmm. and a different demand from Black people in those spaces. A lot of my experience as a young organizer was being in coalitions with white folk, but then having to shrink in order to be accepted, right? You know, it's not really about race, or and and I hope that our white listeners are hearing this not in a hostile spirit, but in a way to understand how we move this work forward. That's true. A lot of people are talking about the need for school funding, and I'm all for that. But you can't talk about school funding unless you talk about the fact that if this system has twenty trillion dollars, they ain't gonna give it to us anyway.
1: Brother G2, I think you're you're absolutely right. What happens sometimes is that when people think about the dynamic between black and white in the civil rights movement, one of the challenges that people like Bob Moses um, and Ella Baker had early on was they wanted interracial coalition building in the hopes of bringing interest and getting white people to understand the problems in the South. But on the ground in terms of organizing, when you have this dynamic by which people feel the need to feel comfortable, start dictating what your movement looks like, uh, dictated by their own concerns about their own comfort. That's right. what I think, you know, Stoke and Carmichael and others were saying post-1966 uh, after Carmichael's call for black power. Don't come into our movement and tell us what it needs to look like in our space. If you want to help, go back and organize your own communities to be anti-racist. That's right. And why they need to ensure full funding for uh, schools in black communities. And this is very relevant now, as, you know, a few years ago, people were talking about after the election of Obama, a post-racial America. Not
0: yet. Not (laughs) yet. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
1: Right. And we see that in some spaces and with organizations Mm. that are saying, look, you know, it's not And you laid it out in terms of talking about the the science and the artistry of organizing. Mm. Alliances are important. They're essential. Coalition's are essential. But at the end of the day, we have to know the difference between the two, because Mm. black voices, voices of color get muted in Mm. spaces where the privilege and comfort of the white majority drowns out the legitimate cries for justice of the black and the brown.
0: So that leads me to another question. Do you see similarities between the emerging movement for education justice today and the civil rights and black power movements that we've learned about?
1: I see them in very concrete and tangible ways. And I see them Mm -hmm. in some ways that I think are are very innovative. Um, And I'll give you an example. So I know your biography and you know mine. I grew up as part of African guides and Part of what I learned was we were reading Malcolm and we were reading Marcus Garvey and we were practicing African drumming. But I got my politics in those spaces, too. You know, my parents didn't name me Yuhuru, which is Swahili for freedom by accident. So all of that was intentional in community building, nation building and understanding Mm -hmm. you had a responsibility in the space to be part of uh, efforts to educate and liberate your people. Mm -hmm. Given that, I think what we're seeing in this moment is the blueprint that we saw in some ways for civil rights and black power manifesting themselves in the current movement to Mm -hmm. ensure. And you see this sometimes just in the language. So Black Lives Matter isn't 1960s style civil rights, but Mm -hmm. they're taking their cues from this idea that, you know, the affirmation of black humanity in and of itself is a cornerstone of liberty, justice, and equality as defined by the American system. Black Mm -hmm. power, as you talked about earlier, is the next level. So that's really at its core about saying, you know, it's a journey for justice we're not that's just it. about integration in a school we're about that's our right. own school determining yeah. the school board controlling the curriculum you know all the pieces that wrap around services mm-hmm. how is a school going to be an integral part a nucleus mm-hmm. of the community not just an outpost for colonialism within you know right. black spaces and i think that's yeah. how we
0: see that yeah. today. you just made me think about uh, an experience so We both are board members of the Network for Public Education. And when I was asked uh, many moons ago to join the board, I was confused. I was like, huh? (laughs) And so I remember what people told me about Diane Ravitch, that she was you know, once uh, one of the main proponents of school privatization, but also was a person that often debated African scholars. But the way I was taught is that we ain't gonna win this by ourselves. I need to believe in the Inguzo Saba, the seven principles, (laughs) but but I I need to build alliances with people across race so that we can win, right? But the issue is don't sacrifice your values in order to build those coalitions, right? I joined the board and some of the early activities, they had me and Diane. This is after the piece in Brooklyn, I think where I met you, right? But we were in Oakland and we were on the stage This was an interesting moment, but it it was, to me, it was a step forward. So, you know, Diane was talking about the need for integration. And I saw some Black Lives Matter brothers in the audience, so I knew they was getting ready to call me out, right? (laughs) So so their piece was like, so G2. I said, yes, sir. What do you think about integration? So I knew, I said, you know, you can't weasel out of this, man. You got to just speak the truth. So I said, look, I believe that we should have access to resources and opportunities. So we should not be stopped from going to any school that we want to go to. Hmm. But the notion that a prerequisite for Black children to be successful is for them to be able to go to school with whites is racist within itself. That's right. And Diane looked at me, and I said, oh, my father, she was like, I never thought about it like that. I mean, this is a preeminent scholar right in the world. But her humility allowed her to hear that perspective. Like when we sit at those tables, We cannot allow our voices to be muted because often we have to educate those that want a better world like us, that that world cannot look just the way you think it should look. Amen. Right. You know, it has to include, you know, our lens as well. You know, organically, we're not accustomed to seeing ourselves in those
1: types of conversations anyway. So to have a brother who's not only doing the work, not only has a command of of what's happening, has put their, you know, has, has skin in the game, has capital on the line to be able to educate at that level, it was, was empowering for a lot of people. Myself, you know, I was kind of looking at organizations like the BATS and, 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 uh, MPE is, mm. you know, they have good intentions and I'm kind of, you know, I kind of understand what they're trying to do, but I don't know how I feel. And then when mm. I saw you, uh, it's like, uh, the, the old intro to Republican, uh, enemy record, It's like when you got some coffee that's too black, so you know it's too strong. Ah! You ain't gonna come in and be watered down. But that's been, I think, empowering because what it's done is help to keep some of those people who claim to be allies and advocates for our issues honest Mm -hmm. about what our issues are.
0: Yes, sir. Brother, I I appreciate that, man. I always think like this. What are we going to leave the next generation other than problems? Mm. I've been out here in these streets for 25 years. Right. And so part of my thinking and again, this I can't take credit for this because this is how I was taught. I was taught by great men. I was taught by giants. I watched men and women walk it before they talked. it. My elder in Padanishi, man, I remember I was a young man and I was I was, you know, I was a cat carrying his bags. I was driving him around. My classroom was I-80 at one in the morning on our <laughs> way. You know what I mean? That was my classroom. And so I saw this brother, man never violate sisters' trust. Mm-hmm. You know, it never, uh, never, I mean never, right? Mm-hmm. Just walk with this discipline. It filled me up because I start, you know, I was a young cat. I'm working in the schools. I'm doing leadership programs in the schools. So if you a young cat that ain't that bad to look at, I ain't bragging, but you know, if you, <laughs> you ain't that bad to look at, you know, you get none but single women in schools, right? And you could rock the mic. You gotta include oh, it as well. It's oh just- yeah, brother. And and, and <laughs> And I had the, the heads of like 300 MCs dragging behind me. Right? <laughs> but uh, but the, the point I'm making, you is that that's a lot of my thinking, man, is, is, is like in Journey for Justice Alliance. Can we build a real network where people don't just talk together, but they work together, mm. right? Can, they can win things together. And then can we build the type of multiracial alliances that folks that come after us can take to another level? Right. Again, what are we going to leave the next generation of it in problems? So I feel like we have to be able to speak our truth. But brother, and pa, taught me this a long time ago. He said, "Be hard on the issue, but be compassionate with the person." Mm-hmm. So that's always fueled me when I'm in those spaces mm-hmm. to be able to speak truth as I understand it, as my people understand it, but not attack the people that I may be having to check. <laughs> right? It's just like right. you know. So, you know, whatever I'm able to accomplish or, you know, I'm thankful. Again, I say it's it's from having like giants take an interest in you and realize that you have something to offer to this struggle.
1: And so it kind of imprints on your DNA a little bit. And I use mm-hmm. that as an acronym, our dreams, how we nurture those dreams and how we act upon those dreams. When mm-hmm. we see uh, our neighborhoods, our sense of integrity, uh, mm-hmm. our women, our schools violated or imperiled. So that's when you a- about that, one of the things that I love um, with regard to Journey in particular, even this podcast, is mm. I see in Journey for Justice the DNA, what Ella Baker sought to pass down, what September mm. Clark talked about. And there are all these powerful sisters like Roncha and others mm. who are involved in Journey.
0: Yes, sir.
1: That is part of this legacy, too. We never had to, not that there wasn't sexism in our community. Sexism is everywhere. It's as American as Cherry Pie to do an interpolation of, of Rat Brown. But at the core, sisters have been at the forefront of struggles for racial justice in our community. In Journey, that's just organic to what you do. Um, In Journey for Justice, what I see going forward and moving forward is this organization that, and I'll I'll give you an example. I was in Detroit with y'all last year, and the Journey bus pull up with brothers and sisters from all over the country, uh, coming out Mm -hmm. from Jersey, Mm -hmm. from New York, and from Chicago, Mm -hmm. and from Detroit. So that's the kind of grassroots, Mm -hmm. cross-community organizing that I Mm -hmm. think going to have to be the hallmark of the 21st century as we think about leveraging social media, thinking concretely, though, also about getting people in face-to-face contact and interrogating the issues we deal with um, across the board. The six degrees of segregation, housing, education, Jim Crow justice, uh, lack of access to places of public accommodation, unfair labor practices, and voter discrimination. But Journey is doing that on the ground and building a blueprint that says, this is what we did in Chicago. So when it manifests in Denver and Oakland, here's the playbook. And oh, by the way, we'll be there to support you. That's yes, what the sir. answers we're doing. That's what we saw with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I think Journey's kind of taking that to the next level for the 21st century.
0: You've given us some big work to try to live up to, but okay. We, we, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that was always important to me as we began this work, you know, to really walk with the understanding that leadership has nothing to do with gender. It does not matter what you have in between your legs. That is not the, the metric for whether you're a warrior or not, right? You know, and I learned that at the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization. Mm-hmm. My director was a sister, Jay Travis. And this sister, you know, fine as wine, you know, looked like she should be on the cover <laughs> of Ebony or something. But that sister was in Zynga. She's a warrior. She she supervised four blacker than a million midnight men, right? <laughs> she had the heart to hold us accountable. And so she earned my respect. I remember one time, man, and I, but we all off script. But that's all right. I remember one time we were uh, there was some some provocateurs that come to one of our community meetings, and it was it was a packed community meeting, you know, the type of Negroes any old check could do, right? <laughs> so they there probably funded by the mayor, or whatever, to disrupt what we're trying to do. And I'm gonna name them. they call Voices of the Ex Offenders. Y'all got a problem? Come see me. <laughs> voices of the Ex Offenders. And they came to our meeting and they trying to turn our meeting out. Well, they hadn't started yet, but I, I see them getting a the line. And she's like, G2, they're not disrupting our meeting. I said, No, they're not. She said, So, you know, you let them brothers know they need to leave. I scanned because I wanted to know what I was dealing with. And before I could take a step, that sister was three steps in front of me, headed toward me, right? (laughs) And so I had to run in front of her and eventually we checked them and we checked them in a way that they wouldn't come back. I'm just going to say that for the podcast. (laughs) But, you know, she earned my respect that way and her consistency and her brilliance and her strategy. And I learned to be an organizer from her. You know what I mean? And so I wanted Journey for Justice to have that same spirit. So while I have a title, right? It's not about me. I have things to contribute to this work, sure. But, you know, Rancha brings a deep soul and an amazing creativity to this work and a strength. Jeribu brings this firm resolve where Jaribu mm. is like, if she's on a mission, she's like a pit bull on me. <laughs> you know, Zakia Ansari, she walks with the soul of our children, and she defends it like, you know, brilliantly. And then Natasha Capers, her understanding of education policy, she is a walking black policy institute, <laughs> right? So it's like all these people, I mean, they're brothers too, but all these, part of our work has to be to recognize the gifts that our people bring to the table. And an organizer is supposed to create the environment where those gifts can grow.
1: I would say this too, because people all, often think about organizations like the Panthers or SNCC as being large organizations. At the height, the Panthers maybe had 3,500 members nationally. So you're mm-hmm. not talking about a huge organization. That's Sometimes right. with a group like Journey, you know, people like you know the white middle class kind of take on this is, where are your membership roles? Are you like the NAACP? How, member, how many members do you claim? The reality is that an organization always knows how strong it is by virtue of the work it can get done with the talent it's able to put on the battlefield. thats it. Journey to me, again, I think is is indicative of what that looks like in a very organic sense when yes, you, sir. you don't need an army to start a revolution, but you do mm-hmm. you need some dedicated revolutionaries to give all to the cause and leverage right. their expertise in ways that, that allow you to do the work.
0: Teach, teach. So, brother, that being said, I think one of the things that's important in this work is real unity across disciplines. Mm. Right. So we talk about how organizing is an artistic science. Right. And I can't tell you how many people did not respect it. My brother, Jolita Bennett, has a saying. He says that everybody thinks organizing is easy, so you got to do it. And the waters are deep. Right. And if you can't tread water, you will drown. So being a scholar, well, how has academia historically worked with black communities and what recommendations would you have for? partnerships between academia and communities moving forward?
1: It's interesting because it's a little bit of a tortured relationship. So when we think Mm. about um, the civil rights movement, a lot of those young people that got involved were coming out off of historically black colleges and university campuses. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Spellman, Stokely Carmichael was at Howard, but a lot of them had to drop out because the administrations of those institutions were not in support of that civil rights activity. They were not Mm interested in having students rock the boat. It wasn't until much later that they caught up and said, hey, what these young people are doing really is is kind of pressing the boundaries of Mm -hmm. cross segregation and perhaps creating opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. college campus has always been an incubator for young black intellectuals, for young African Mm -hmm. intellectual activity, because these are spaces where, especially after black studies uh, got started, you know, in the late 60s, you got Ron Mm -hmm. Karenga and, and the US organization Um, And the Mary Baraka and the Black Power or Black Arts Movement kind of pushing that, creating spaces for a collection of books and and literature and production of Black plays and Black arts to kind of inspire and uplift our community. So in that sense, the university has been very helpful. But then there is this antagonism. So when we look at some of the most prominent universities in this country, my brother Stefan Bradley wrote a book, uh, Harlem versus Columbia. Uh, the fact mm. of the matter is that so many of these institutions a the Yale University uh, is anchored in the Hill section in New Haven, Connecticut, which was a And they, you know, they cut off resources, drive up resources. They're nonprofits. You have uh, grassroots organizations talking about pilot or payment in lieu of taxes because universities don't contribute to the overall um, mm. economic structure of a community. And so how do you address that? And when we talk about academe, you sometimes have pockets of faculty who are very externally facing, who are very much involved in the community. Um, you saw that with sisters like Angela Davis, who said, mm-hmm. you know, be damned I have this degree, I'm going to use this in, in the service mm-hmm. of my people. But then you also have this, um, you know, for lack of a better term, Uh, sterilizing effect that can happen when the research Mm. simply is the research Mm. and it's not dictated or directed in any way toward uplifting the community. So Mm. a long-winded way of saying, I think it's tortured, it has been tortured, it will remain tortured. And to tell you the truth, G2, I mean, here's where I think we need to go uh, going forward. We need to create more spaces, and I think the Panthers were trying to do this in in, in L.A. when you had that infamous shootout that resulted in the death of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. Mm. But the Panthers were trying to get black students to have these black studies programs, but to integrate and work with community organizations and to say, we have an army of brain power on this campus. How can we turn that in a way and and utilize that resource to tackle some of the issues we have on the streets? I think about the African students, black students who are interested in STEM, who are interested in medicine, who are interested in technology. Can we get them to instead of doing internships for Fortune 500 companies or hospitals, come and work in community clinics and help to you know, move mm. us in the direction of uplifting our communities. Mm-hmm. I think that's always been in some sense what you've seen on the mm. part of activists like Huey Newton and Bobby Sewell college students. People forget mm. that they were a marriage mm-hmm. college, but that's they are right. utilizing that principally white academic space to uplift mm. black people.
0: Teach, teach. I called you the humble genius earlier, right? Here's why, because, You've always been very, you know, effusive with your praise and and just really lifting us up and our accomplishments and our work. And none of us do this work for praise, right? We don't do this work for people to, you know, but keep it 100. If you are out here and you're struggling and and, and you're fighting for someone to affirm that, no, brother, we see you. Mm. No, sister, we see you. It is important. But that approach to research, I think, when you work with communities, is also you know, it's also important, right? Um, I, I'm gonna throw this at you, brother. I'm I'm actually working on a project. I want to develop a Black policy and organizing institute, like a real space a where black people think can go. Tank. Not even just a, a think tank, but also like if people need to come and get organizing training. I love Right? That. They can come there if we want to develop policy to connect housing and education and to make sure that housing and education are linked in regards to creating infrastructure to get our people out of poverty in our communities. How do we develop that type of policy? How do people in our communities understand how to not only read, analyze, but create policy, right? So on the on the ground podcast, brother, I'm, I'm asking for your assistance to uh, sit down and think some of this through with me because I'm serious about it. Again, what do we leave the next generation other than problems?
1: Yes, you, I'm all in.
0: I, I think oh, that, brother, that's but it's good typical
1: you. of you. Again, you're, you're a kind of ahead of the game. For me, I think we need a university partner at this point. And I try to do this at Delaware State University. Mm-hmm. and This is part of the, the problem. I think it needs to be in an urban area. To do this in a lily white campus, someplace removed from the issues you want to address, I think is problematic. We mm-hmm. need a laboratory. As you yes, were talking sir. about earlier, like a Philadelphia or a, mm. you know, Jersey City, someplace mm. where you can really kind of say, this is what we're combating. This is what it looks like bringing in the best minds and, and thinkers from across the country. And I'm not just talking about academics. I'm talking about organizers. Yes, you know? sir. Because I'll say this, and, and, and my praise for diet may be effusive, but I know a lot of people can do 34 days in the archives and couldn't do 34 minutes without something to eat. <laughs> so about 34 days... Yes, Without sir. eating, to me, spoke to my heart, man. To me, that was my Little Rock moment. That was like watching the Little Rock Nine. And I remember saying to my daughter, Ella, cause I was telling her about it. And I said, so what do you think would compel somebody not to partake of food and nourishment for that long? In defense of education, you know, if you ever had any doubts about why you should be performing academically, there's your mm-hmm. proof. If you ha- ever had any doubts about what it means to be a black person in America and where you stand vis-a-vis power, that should be an affirmation of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that praise is coming from a place, and, and this is why I think this is such a great idea, where, you know, we need to find more ways to create synergies instead of mm-hmm. silos.
0: I have one last question for you, brother. And this question is a $20 million question. One of the things that, that I push back against is when people say, we need to push back we're pushing back against the school privatization movement. And I'm like, no, we need to kill the privatization movement. You know, if a bully is beating you upside the head, your father don't say, (laughs) go out there and push back. Your father says, if you don't whoop his, I'm whooping yours, right? (laughs) So in your mind, brother, what's the state of the school privatization movement and how do we kill it? I think part of the problem that we have now is that
1: so many people who are still part of the national landscape, from Cory Booker, and can can just throw names out all day, Mm -hmm. people who are seeking political power are knee deep in the privatization movement. And so Mm -hmm. this is going to be a hard enterprise because it's going to require not just pushing back, but fighting against some people who see themselves as allies and people who assume are are our natural allies. The pushback is the polite way. It's kind of the Minnesota nice way, you know, Mm -hmm. Western nice way of saying, you know, we want to challenge this, but we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. In uh, mm-hmm. immortal words of G2, uh, trouble the waters, because if you mm. don't trouble the waters, you know, you don't create genuine, authentic conversation about why we believe this is wrong. And so mm. you know, everybody loved him some Obama. I loved Obama, too. But, you know, Arne Duncan was poison without question. And privatization got a boom by virtue of the policies that were put into place. And I had some people who were saying, oh, you know, I'm against privatization, but I'm down for the president. Can't work that way. I got to put pressure right. wherever I see That's the right. manifestations of that injustice. That moves you away from the pushback to the punchback. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when you're in the pushback mode, it's always a question of, well, I don't want to alienate or hurt anybody's feelings. or, or, And then sometimes, you know, people think they are doing the right thing. So they're like, we're going about this politely. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the, the Panthers and people are going to take this in the wrong context, but I, I need to say it in its, in its rawest form. The Panthers carry guns and law books. They had a dual strategy. The NAACP had direct action protest, but then they were also in the courts. Mm-hmm. A dual strategy is necessary in this contest. And that dual yeah. strategy is one group of people that come, with sharpened up machetes to say, we about to hack privatization and that movement to death. And the other yeah. group is standing in front going, you better deal with us because you don't want to deal with the other ones. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the middle ground is not really a middle ground because the end result should be the same. The end of Mm -hmm. privatization is a panacea for the problems that ail our schools.
0: Brother, we couldn't end on a better note than that. I want to thank you again, Dr. Uh Yuhuru Williams, for spending some time with us, brother. I I know your schedule is busy. Always Uh, good seeing you, brother. So, look, family, as you got the lessons that you got today from Dr. Williams and just understanding the civil rights and black power movement, the lessons from it, and how it relates to the work that we do today and how we should engage with each other, uh, leading with humility, leading with understanding, leading with being a resource, instead of being an authority. Walk with that, right? So let's do that work, man, because we, we have a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do in our cities and in our communities. So I'm gonna leave you all with one of my favorite songs from the Blastmaster Karis 1. It's interesting that when they talk about the top five MCs, I'm starting to hear Keras' name left off that list. And that's crazy. People have to remember that before Rakim and before the Blastmaster Karis 1, we were still going, you know, one to the two to the three to four. four. And when when Karis 1 dropped Criminal Minded and he dropped songs like Elementary and he dropped songs like Poetry, and Criminal Minded, it changed hip hop forever. And that brother, to this day, I've never seen a live performance better than a Blastmaster Karras one concert. And I just seen some, Big Daddy Kane is a monster on stage. That man in his 50s and can still do splits, he's incredible. But when Karras one is rocking that bridge is over and he's he's got his hands going up and down and you feel the floor vibrate, ain't nothing like that, right? He had a song called Why Is That? And we were being politicized by hip-hop. You know, Chuck D had Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. It made you think about the prison industrial complex before it even had a name. Uh, Poor Righteous Teachers dropped "Sequela, My Queen. It was the first song when MC called a black woman a queen, right? Mm-hmm. That was political education. And krs One dropped a song called Why Is That? And he talked about the black presence in the Bible. And when y'all hear it, you can hear him say, Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, explains the genealogy of Shem. Shem was a black man in Africa. If you repeat this back, they can't laugh at you. Now, I want to tell you where I was when I was listening to that. I was in the basement of my friends of house, Jesse Talbot, who was one of the biggest gangster disciples in my neighborhood. And we were playing cards, drinking beer, smoking weed, but listening to Blastmaster Master K. We wasn't listening to talk about shooting. We were all sitting up there talking about Genesis uh, chapter 11 verse 10 Explains the genealogy of Shem So hip hop Was teaching us And Glassmaster Care one Wanted us to question Why do we see God the way we see God Why don't we see ourselves When we see God And he was saying This is a young cat from the Bronx Talking to us like this And the question I want to ask y'all As we leave this podcast Is why is that Why Don't we connect the struggles from yesterday to the struggles from today? Why don't we learn from our past mistakes? Why don't we learn about class division in black communities from W.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey? Why do we keep acting as if we are the first ones that ever said we wanted to be free? And with that, I want to say peace, to unana, until we meet again. Brother Yuhuru, salute. Salute. Beloved, brother. Thank you all for being with us once again on the ground.
2: To excuse my sins I can walk anywhere I choose Cause everybody listens to the BDP crew We're not here for glamour or fashion But here's the question I'm asking Why isn't young black kids taught black? They're only taught how to read, write, and act It's like teaching a dog to be a cat You don't teach white kids to be black Why is that? Is it because we're the minority? Well, black kids follow me? Genesis chapter 11 verse 10